Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. This week's episode has two in-depth interviews that we're pretty certain you will enjoy. Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Later in this episode, Physicians Weekly speaks with Professor Richard Sullivan. He's a professor of cancer and global health at King's College London and director of the Institute of Cancer Policy and co-director of the Conflict and Health Research Group. Professor Sullivan studies the impact of conflict on health. In addition to being a trained urologist, he was also the clinical director of the Cancer Research UK program between 1999 and 2008. And today he talks with us about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how healthcare there will be dramatically affected. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. But first, Physicians Weekly's correspondent talks with our regular contributor who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw. Dr. Medlaw is a board-certified radiologist as well as a medical malpractice attorney, and today she turns her focus on expert witnesses. How are they selected? What are the expectations? And she gives some pretty juicy, terrible examples of particular expert witnesses as well. So enjoy listening. Visit physiciansweekly.com forward slash podcast. Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney. Dr. Medlaw, thanks for being here once again. Great to be here. Expert witnesses can make or break a case, can't they? Yeah, that's true. They have a very unique position in the litigation. You know, the parties, they're, they're openly opponents. The lawyers, they're openly advocates, but an expert is presented as being neutral. You know, these are very accomplished men and women who are there to speak the independent medical truth. So selecting an expert and getting the most out of them is going to be essential. Now, the defense attorney will usually select the expert. They probably have a stable of people they worked with successfully. But the defendant doctor can make recommendations. And even if the recommendation is not taken up, the doctor should really understand how the expert is selected and how they're best utilized. What are the first steps in selecting an expert witness? The after remember the, uh, nothing disappears. Their past is discoverable, their writings are public, and their testimony in every case they ever worked on can be easily obtained. So you really have to vet them closely. Make sure that, you know, what they said before is consistent with what they're going to be saying now. And any expert you're thinking of retaining should be given the name of all the litigants on both sides to see if there are any conflicts of interest. And they should be required to submit their own list of cases they've worked on and any literature they have authored. The general rule is that communications like that are shielded as attorney work product. And work product is the material that an attorney collects and creates in preparation for litigation. The reason we protect that is because one side shouldn't be able to come in and scoop up all the practical and strategic material that the other side has prepared. Can the doctor communicate with the expert during the evaluation period? Sure, and they should. 
The doctor should know what the expert who will be guiding the lawyer has to say. And it's also a chance for the doctor to mention any discrepancies with the facts or medicine as the doctor understands them. So then the attorney can hash those out with the expert before depositions start. Now, the defendant doctor and the expert, they have really complementary roles in explaining the case to the jury. The doctor will say what happened, when it happened, in what order it happened, and what their thoughts and perceptions and decisions were at all of those times and what actions they therefore took. Then the expert places those facts into the context of the standard of care. So those two aspects need to be seamless. So the doctor should be aware of how the expert is approaching the case. Now, that all having been said, never make this about intruding on the attorney's prerogative to run the case. It's their job. They went to school for it. Just present yourself as having input that can be useful. How about dealing with experts on the other side who may be hired guns? Well, all experts are hired guns. They're all hired to voice a position that favors the side that hired them. It's a role that's baked into the adversarial method of litigation. However, abuse of the system by the expert does not have to be tolerated. And the first limitation may come from the state itself. Uh, The standard of who can be an expert used to be kind of loose, you know, similarity in the area of practice. And what similar meant could be pretty wide. The court allowing a nephrologist to testify against a urologist was something of a stretch. But a vascular surgeon could be allowed to testify on the standard of care of an orthopedic surgeon. Now, the counterbalance was, of course, you know, that the defense could impeach the expert on his or her lack of solid connection to the practices of the specialty they were opining on. But you know what they say about bills that can't be unrun? What the experts said in court had already been heard by the jury. So states have therefore begun to adopt stricter limits. And examples of this are like in Florida, the proposed expert must practice in the same specialty as the defendant. And in New Jersey, he or she must actually be board certified in the same specialty. So for example, in New Jersey, their highest court ruled that a critical care specialist could not testify against an emergency physician. And this can parse down to subspecialization. For example, a a friend of mine in New York had her expert, who was a general ophthalmologist who did some refractive surgery, challenged as to use in a case against an ophthalmologist whose practice was entirely refractive surgery. And in that case, the judge found enough overlap to allow the expert to continue. But by contrast, in Arizona, their highest court upheld the disqualification of a specialist in adult hematology and oncology in a case against a pediatric hematologist-oncologist. But there are doctors who basically make their living by testifying. Now, don't confuse this with, you know, really well-known, great practitioners who are in demand because they're well-known and they're great. This is about willingness to stamp any case with approval because you're being paid for it. When I was doing litigation, there was a doctor in the area who was really notorious for this. You know, his name became like a jokey watchword for uh, a lousy case. 
because he would just say anything to fluff any case. However, he actually delivered results because he had a great manner and jurors loved him. And he kept being used, you know, to try to limit experts. And now I'm doing air quotes around experts who are really just play for pay shills. The states are requiring that a proposed expert actually be a functioning doctor. For example, in Maryland, they have a requirement that any physician being proffered as an expert must spend a specified amount of time actually practicing medicine. What if an expert misrepresents or outright lies in giving their opinion? Now, expert witnesses used to enjoy almost absolute immunity for what they said. This was really to preserve litigation itself as a process, because if every time someone said something the other side didn't like, they then sued them, then you just have endless litigation within litigation and a case would never end. The idea was that, you know, vigorous litigation with the other side challenging the testimony on cross-examination was the remedy if an expert was stretching issues in their testimony. That's no longer the case, though. For example, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said something pretty blunt. They said experts whose opinions are available to the highest bidder have no place testifying in a court of law before a jury and with the imprimatur of the trial judge's decision that they are an expert. So in other words, the expectation of the law is that the expert will testify honestly in their role as an educator of a lay jury and won't be self-serving. And so anyone who falls short of those standards should just not receive the protection, the testimonial immunity, otherwise confers. What this means is that experts who abuse that status can be sued, and they can even be criminally prosecuted. How would that work? Well, an expert who doesn't tell the truth about the medical issues in a case while they're under oath has committed perjury. They intentionally lied while sworn, and that lie was about a matter that was material, you know, legal for important, to an official proceeding, a trial. That's the definition of perjury. Uh, But really, prosecutors have no interest in spending their limited resources on what is seen as basically a civil pissing contest. And even if they were interested, it would be hard to prove. The expert is there to render an opinion, and opinions are not facts. So even if the opinion is, well, counterfactual, it wouldn't really be perjury as a misstatement of a discrete event would be. So basically, things have to get pretty egregious for there to be a prosecution. Let me give you an example of something that was egregious and that got prosecuted. Dr. Melvin Fly, he had lied about being on staff at a hospital that had removed him. He claimed that he was still actively doing surgery when he wasn't. And he lied about his own record of being sued for malpractice. So on the basis of those lies, he was a frequent flyer, no pun intended on his name, who was testifying all over Missouri and Arkansas as now his primary occupation. And so this has really become a systemic fraud that had permeated multiple court systems and finally prosecutors in Arkansas had it, you know, up to here, and I'm motioning up to here, and they stepped in as a matter of public policy and they charged him with felony perjury. 
So the point to understand is that while testimonial immunity is no longer, you know, as inviolate as it once was, the remedy as to the substantive content of the expert's testimony, what they are opining, that remains to rebut it within the case. Do a good cross-examination. And if it turns out that misrepresentation was pivotal in the outcome of the case, bring an appeal. So what effective constraint is there on bad experts? Well, there really is some good constraint through peer review and discipline. This is really a market thing because for a physician who wants to sell their service as an expert witness, if there are sanctions against their license or against their membership in prestigious societies, those are penalties that go straight to their wallets. The AMA has stated that giving expert testimony is actually the practice of medicine and it makes it subject to that type of review. All right, now the AMA is only advisory, but state boards and professional societies have looked at expert testimony under that ambit. And for example, Dr. Fly and Dr. Zakaria that we just talked about, they had their licenses revoked or surrendered because of their false representations about themselves to get business as experts. Professional societies have become involved in the expert witness activities of their members. The American Association of Neurologic Surgeons was the first. Now many societies actually monitor the involvement of their members as expert witnesses in medical malpractice actions. And courts have permitted the disciplining of expert witnesses by their professional associations. Now, of course, those associations have to show that their own hands are clean and that they're not just going after doctors who might criticize their members or trying to make it hard for plaintiffs to get experts. For example, a California court refused to enforce a medical association bylaw that barred criticism of other physicians. You know, the court said, this made doctors afraid to criticize their colleagues who might actually be practicing substandard medicine. And so it was against public policy. So if you look at the example cases together, the standard is that the association policy should not be a blanket ban that would prevent even the revelation of poor medical care or make it impossible for a plaintiff to get an expert but an association that wants to assure itself that its members meet its own standards, that's fully permissible. That'll be upheld. Dr. Medlaw, as always, thank you for your expert opinion. And as always, thanks for the chance to talk about this important topic. Our next interview has to do with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and the World Health Organization is concerned that hypothermia, frostbite, respiratory diseases, mental health issues, a lack of treatment for heart disease and cancer are really the biggest concerns at the moment for the people of Ukraine. But there's a lot of impacts that we haven't considered, like access to birth control and so forth that will have an effect, not to mention the fact that there will be certainly a rise in COVID-19 in this population, which is also not one of the better vaccinated groups in Europe, with vaccination rates around 35% before the conflict. So thank you so much for joining us, Professor Sullivan. Could you tell me, in general, what are the main consequences of war on healthcare systems? 
war has a huge and detrimental effect on healthcare for systems. Firstly, it destroys the both the physical and the human infrastructure of healthcare systems delivery. And by that, I mean it, it destroys hospital. What we're seeing increasingly with contemporary wars across the world, starting in the Middle East, um, is this tendency to violate international humanitarian law and to target hospitals. Um, that was particularly prominent during the Syrian regime. We're seeing it again with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and sadly, we're seeing it all over the world. So that's a major, major issue with the physical infrastructure. But more importantly, physical infrastructure can be rebuilt. It's also the targeting of um, healthcare workers, be they doctors, nurses, midwives. The other consequence, of course, is, you know, war does two things. First of all, it drives healthcare workers away from the conflict area. So what we often see in contemporary conflicts is huge migration of, of healthcare workers abroad. Once those individuals leave the country, they tend to get settled in those other countries and then when the conflict ends and you have a transition to peace, they simply are not coming back. So you have to restart that comp that capital all over again. It also distorts care because more of the healthcare workers left end up having to work in trauma and in specific areas germane to that conflict. So a lot of skill sets are lost because the individuals left in that conflict zone have to readapt. That's, of course, for the for the healthcare um, workers themselves. But, of course, the systems are about the therapeutic geographies of patients, patients actually being able to access that healthcare. And, of course, what we know in, in war is it has massive impact in terms of security and the ability for, for patients to access any form of healthcare. They have to navigate checkpoints. They may be the wrong ethnic or religious group trying to navigate checkpoints held by different factions. It may simply be too dangerous to go out because of mortaring, artillery. And again, we're seeing that in, in Ukraine, where even if hospitals are still functioning, it's been almost impossible for civilians to access that. And it means civilians, of course, turn into internally displaced people. They have to move vast distances away from their homes. And then, of course, many of those then become refugees. And all in all, it's a, it has a massive backward impact. It is really is full-scale human health de-development when it comes to conflict. Right, and just following up with you, the specific aspect of the Russian war tactics of targeting civilian healthcare systems in Ukraine, could you possibly comment on that? Yes, I mean, what we're seeing essentially is both artillery and aerial bombardments, which are showing absolutely no convenience with the international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions. So they've been targeting hospitals, healthcare facilities, but this isn't the first time, unfortunately. This is a trend that's been set in place over the last 10 years and started really during the Syrian war, where we've seen enormous violations in health law, um, both on the Assad regime and also the backers of the Assad regime, the Russians, who have targeted healthcare facilities with impunity. And of course, the problem is the international community has simply not held them to account. So this has become a kind of normalized behavior. And how can Western countries and allies support Ukraine in maintaining their level of healthcare? I mean, this is specific, but it's actually true for any country that's under this sort of threat. Um, well, firstly, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult in many parts of, of Ukraine now, particularly in the north, in the east, in the south, in, in the oblasts like Sumy, Cherkiv, and places like that. We're talking about a full-scale conflict underway. Any ability to access these areas really is enormously difficult. It simply is about providing humanitarian corridors and negotiating um, with the warring parties to get civilians out and moved across to the western Ukraine where there are functioning hospitals still. 
There are a number of oblasts at the moment, for example, Kiev in itself, in which the services are partially functioning. The main issue really has been obviously getting in critical medical and surgical supplies into the country. But of course, that is up against huge challenges with the main supply routes being cut, constant threat of artillery, you know, bombardment or air bombardment. And, and of course, we're now dealing with delivering health care to refugees as they're coming across into the different hosting countries. And that's mainly into Poland, Romania, Moldova, um, Slovak Republic. And it's been, and that's a really big challenge because it's the sheer numbers and and the speed in which they're coming across the border. And remember, Ukraine is a demographically transitioned country, so it has very high levels of non-communicable diseases. So at the moment, the systems are certainly emergent in terms of you know providing healthcare, but it is complicated. Many patients who've got non-communicable diseases like cancer are coming across the border seeking care. Firstly, there's a language barrier. There are not many Ukrainian speakers, and it's been really tricky for many of our cancer centers to find those Ukrainian speakers. Number two is often they don't know how they've already been treated. They may not even know exactly what they've been diagnosed with. Many are turning up without any form of medical notes, very little knowledge of their disease, and that's requiring completely new workup. And the third problem is not all the health systems in the receiving countries are the same levels of strength. Uh, Moldova, for example, was already red listed in terms of not being the strongest health system. So absorbing refugees at this speed into the hospital system is already starting to overwhelm many places. So this is the issue really now about what's the minimal basic package of care we can give in host countries and how can we redistribute patients who need more complex cancer care, more complex cardiovascular care, more complex respiratory care, to other wealthier countries like Germany, the UK, etc. Absolutely. And on top of that, we're in the middle of a pandemic as well. So I suspect there'll be a surge of COVID cases as well. Yes. I mean, this is, we we really don't, we really don't know what that's going to do to to the COVID cases. Fortunately, many of the countries, particularly higher income countries, have got very good levels of vaccination, but that's not necessarily true for a lot of the other populations around the initial hosting countries. And and the level of vaccinations in Ukraine have been relatively low. So I suspect we're going to probably see another big spike in COVID-19 cases, which are already led on to pre-existing issues that the refugees are going to face. Right. And how do you estimate the long-term consequences of conflicts like this? These conflicts have huge long-term consequences on health. And firstly, for children and adolescents, the impact on mental health long-term is is vast. And then there have been studies over the years from, from Palestine to Syria showing how it affects long-term mental health. Obviously, with education as well, education is key to health literacy. And our whole health-seeking behaviours are predetermined by levels of education, levels of development, levels of economic growth. And you can imagine, it's very easy then, to see why conflict and long-term conflict causing de-development then leads to far worse outcomes across all health indicators, whether it's child and maternal mortality or non-communicable diseases, simply because of the health-seeking behaviour and the social determinants of health that refugees and IDPs find their place in. And then kind of fundamentally, of course, within any conflict country, affected country, it's about rebuilding systems and services. These take decades to put in decades to put in place and only a couple of years to destroy. And so this has always been the big problem is once you get the transition to peace and you start reconstruction, 
the time and effort that's required to going into rebuilding health services systems is something that this commitment can be sort of 10 to 20 years. And what we often see in the development community is humanitarian aid doesn't really think like that. It's, it's really a sticking plaster. And, and in many countries, we haven't seen really, really good development of healthcare systems out of conflict. I mean, I can literally count on one hand. I'll give you an example is Rwanda, for example. But that took an enormous effort to get them to where they are now following the conflicts in, in 1994, where we had the civil war there. If Ukraine does end up under Russian power... Russia has to withdraw. I mean, we're talking about an occupying power here. And what we know from health and conflict studies, I mean, we, we've done a lot of work with our friends in Birzeh, in Palestine, on the West Bank, is occupying powers are essentially a continuation of conflict. So the longer Russia stays in there, the longer the conflict goes on for, with all the downstream effects on the health for that population. In what ways is this particular conflict different than other conflicts if you look at Iraq or Afghanistan or other Russian-led invasions? Could you comment on that? Are there distinctions here to the Ukrainian situation? In many ways, it's very similar to other conflicts in terms of downstream effect. But here, what we're seeing, of course, is the use of modern weapons here, modern heavy artillery, modern tanks, and the consequences of rapid, destructive urban warfare using a particular type of tactic here, which is essentially aerial bombardment to reduce those areas to rubble. So this has a particular, every conflict has its own particular characteristics where this is concerned. And obviously this conflict, similar to the Syrian conflict, is affecting demographically transitioned societies. So these are societies essentially with high levels of complex non-communicable diseases. So those two things I think are relatively unique. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. This is really interesting. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. If you would like to suggest a topic for discussion or contribute to Physicians Weekly, please email pwpodcast at physiciansweekly.com.